G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Well, we're back again for another intriguing episode of the podcast that answers your giant questions. And we have been going through the primeval history, that's Genesis chapters 1 through 11, for quite some time now. And we're deep into chapter 2 at the moment. Last week we talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to continue our study of that this week. Yeah, that's right, Chris. We're going to talk about the consequence of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because we didn't get into that last time. We were focused on identifying what that phrase meant, knowledge of good and evil. And now that we've got a bit of an idea about that, we still have to work out what to do with the consequence that God pronounces. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that's an unusual turn of phrase in more than one way. In fact, we could probably break it down into two sections because the first part, in the day that you eat of it, I think that phrase warrants its own investigation. And then we need to consider what does it mean when God says, you shall surely die, or as they put it literally in the Hebrew, dying, you shall die. Yeah, so maybe we should just read that scripture again just to keep it fresh in our minds. Good idea. You're an ideas man, Chris. I like that. I try. Genesis 2, verses 16 to 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So that first part of God's pronouncement, in the day that you eat of it, that's a real puzzle because anyone who's read this story before knows that he went on to live to 930 years of age, according to Genesis 5. So, there is a very, very long time between the literal 24-hour day in which he ate that fruit and the day in which he actually died outside of the garden. So we're either not talking about a literal day or we're not talking about a literal death and possibly both of those scenarios at once. But trying to insist on only one view of any of these options is going to result in digging yourself a hole. The idea of literal days is an important consideration. I think we can confidently rule out literal days if we're going to argue that the man will physically pass away before sunset on the day that he partakes of the fruit. Because we know that there's such a long time that appears to elapse between the man's transgression and his eventual bodily death. That is, unless we consider the possibility that we're talking about time from God's perspective. Because God isn't bounded by time, so when it happens isn't really a problem as far as God is concerned. As the scripture says, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. So if we're going to read it like that, then his transgression and his bodily death occur on the same day. That's obviously not the case literally, although some historical interpretations have followed along those lines. We need to remember, though, that the scriptures were written by ordinary men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and usually from their own perspective. We could also consider that this pronouncement is one of destiny. In other words, the man is destined to die because of what he does that day, and it really doesn't matter how long it takes for that pronouncement to come into effect, because it's good as done. It's going to happen. And we can't really rule that out. Actually, I think the Hebrew grammar favours that reading. Some interpreters read the phrase as saying, in the day that you eat of it, you will be doomed to die. So the man here doesn't need us digging holes with our interpretations. He's dug his own already. That's a deep hole. Might have water in it. 
So we have these situations where the Bible speaks of things being as good as done. When you accept Christ, you're saved, even though you might live another hundred years before you go to be with the Lord. Even though you might turn away from the Lord and become apostate in the meantime. So we have this kind of language that suggests that an action that is done in this time now reflects a reality that will not yet be seen for a long time and may in fact be subject to change. So if that's the case, then the day of the man's transgression may be the day in which his fate is sealed, even though that fate will take hundreds of years to play out. So we're back to literal days. If we consider that the moment in which the man chooses to disobey is the very same moment in which his death is secured. So there are different ways to understand this, which help us to make sense of the narrative. It's more of a vibe. So we talked about dying. But we can only talk about dying if we know what living is like in the garden. And there are some strange ideas around about what that life might have been like. You see, for those of us who got very familiar with our New Testament theology before we took a serious look at Genesis, it might appear that there was no death of any sort, of any description, that occurred before the fall of man. This is Romans chapter 5, and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So it would appear that if it hadn't been for Adam, then there would be no death of any kind in God's good world. Now, I'm going to disagree with that because, number one, that is absolutely not what the first audience of Scripture would have understood. Remember, Genesis 2 is written anywhere between 1400 to 600 years before Christ and talking about death as a consequence of the fall in an environment where natural death was very well understood. And given that the kind or the nature of death in this passage is not specifically elaborated on, we have to assume that it's a kind of death that the first audience of Scripture would have been well enough acquainted with that they didn't need explained to them. So I'm going with natural death of the physical body in the immediate context of the reading. And I think that view holds up well given the situation, so that's a literal death in a non-literal time. Because we know, and this is reason number two, that God put the tree of life in the garden. And we will find out later that it is access to this tree of life that keeps the man alive. So the denial of access to the tree serves as his condemnation. And that tells us that the tree of life was a necessity in order to secure ongoing life and rejuvenation in the Garden of Eden. Mankind was not created immortal but rather he was created to be sustained indefinitely by God, and in that way to enjoy everlasting life. That everlasting life is contingent on access to the tree of life, and this is where we have to start retracing our steps logically. You've got to maintain that connection to the source. My dad, he reckons power lines are a reminder of man's ability to generate electricity, and there's no power if there's no connection. So if the man is going to have access to the tree of life, he needs to make sure that he can stay in the garden, or at least have access to it. And if he's going to be allowed to stay in the garden, which is the dwelling place of God, and the place where God and man are able to meet, don't forget now we talked about the tree of life as being representative of the life-giving presence of God. If the man should find himself in a state that renders him unfit to be in the presence of God, then that would disqualify him from access to everlasting life. And this is exactly what happens when God gives his commandment, and the man commits the transgression. We see here a loose parallel to the epic of Gilgamesh when, after going on an epic journey to discover the secret to everlasting life, 
Gilgamesh loses the plant that was supposed to give him the rejuvenation of his life and stave off his inevitable death because a serpent stole it away from him. It's interesting that this Babylonian story speaks of a plant that does not provide immortality, but rather prolongs the mortal life, which is the same sense that we get from the reading of Genesis. And again, I suppose I should clarify, as I always do, that just because two ancient Near Eastern texts talk about the same ideas, it does not mean that one borrowed from the other, depended on the other, stole from the other, or was copied from the other. We've got to remember that culture is incredibly broad and all-encompassing, and these stories and these themes were known to everyone from prehistoric times, not just one scribe writing one book having read one other book. It's a storytelling culture. Stories are told to large groups of people, and then they go and share it with other groups. So that across the world, we have a common, basic narrative. As opposed to your constant references, although I do enjoy them, to the Aussie cult movie The Castle, most of our audience uh, is American, so they probably don't even know that you're telling jokes. Ah, tell them you're dreaming. (laughs) Having said that, I suppose it warrants a further disclaimer that just because there are common stories shared across cultures and people groups, that doesn't mean that the theological messaging is the same, or that the identity of persons involved in the stories is the same, or that there is necessarily any common thread between these different cultures that leads back to reconciliation with God the Father. We know that this can only come through Jesus Christ, and while the stories and the histories of other nations may point to a common mythology, we need to be mindful of the intelligences at work behind the scenes in those cultures and the ultimate aim that those principalities and powers are working towards. We have to realise that any divine being outside of Yahweh the Creator is going to lead away from him. And why do they do that? Because once the word of God has been broken by the man, he immediately ceases to function as God's representative. Now, that's not to say that he ceases to be human and does not bear the image of God anymore. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about what he's doing, how he is functioning. And as long as he is upholding the word of God, then he is functional as God's representative. But the moment he crosses the line and does something contrary to God's word, that function of representation ceases to operate and the man has profaned himself in the presence of God. Now it's time to talk about a little thing called holiness. You see, God is holy because he is entirely different to all of his creation, including his human representatives, by way of his perfect purity and his immense glory. And it is precisely because the man has ceased to function as his representative that the man must by necessity be exiled to protect him from what would happen if he were to remain in the presence of a holy God. Throughout the scriptures, we have examples of the fear of men when faced with the possibility that they might be exposed to the holy presence of God in its manifest glory. And in every case, the protagonist of each story fears for their life because they expect that the glory of the holy God would consume them in fire. So to protect the man from this terrible fate, God will send the man away from his presence in order to preserve his life. Now this gives us some indication of the nature of the death we were talking about, because if exile is a mercy designed to preserve life, then the death of the man in that day is the death of his functionality as God's representative. Going back to some of our earliest episodes in this podcast, in season one we talked about the way that function is tied intrinsically to existence, and the idea of something existing or being was connected directly to the function or the doing of whatever that thing is. If the man's job is to represent God and he fails to do it, 
then as God's representative, he is functionally dead. And though the man lives and his bodily life is acknowledged and not challenged, it is his function as a representative of God that has suffered the mortal blow. The man is still made in the image of God, but he has not represented him well, and therefore he is functionally dead. So this verse in Romans 5 is talking about the death of humans as a consequence connected to transgression. It does not tell us anything to do with the death of other organisms. This is purely a death that applies only to humanity because the condition upon which human death is predicated in this text is the trespass of humanity. And we'll take it further because Paul's use of this terminology makes it very clear that he sees Adam as the archetype for all humanity who are supposed to be representatives of God, a role that ultimately only Jesus Christ successfully fulfills, and therefore it makes sense that Paul's understanding of death in this passage is linked to the concept of representation and a functional understanding of what it is to be made in the image of God. It's more than just a vibe. It's the Constitution. I should point out as well, since we have eliminated the possibility of mankind having been made immortal, that we can dispense with Gnostic ideas about humans having been created as beings of light in the first instance. We've already talked about the creation of man, and you can go back to our earlier episodes over the last two seasons to get a better understanding of what it means for man to have been created. The main point that we need to grasp is that humans were indeed ordinary flesh and blood creatures chosen by God to be bestowed with the status and task of representation in the flesh. I know that people often point to God's provision of skins to cover the man and his wife once they realise their nakedness, but we don't need to extrapolate that out to the provision of mortal fleshly bodies for these ethereal light beings. The first humans were just as fleshly and just as mortal as we are. We're going to cover this in more depth, of course, next season when we cover Genesis 3. What we've seen so far is that the day that the man should eat of the fruit would not be the same day that his mortal flesh would fail him, but instead it would be the day that having attempted to take fate into his own hand, he would find that his own fate had been sealed. Should he attempt to judge for himself, he would find himself judged because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, as we've seen, represents the position of judgment, belongs to God alone and to those to whom God will give it. This is why I don't get worried when people say to me, didn't God lie when he told the man he would surely die that day? Because when you understand the functional worldview of the ancient Near East, you recognize that when something ceases to function, it ceases to exist functionally and is in that sense dead. So the word God spoke was fulfilled to the letter, and it's only our understanding of what death means that needs to be kept in alignment with the scriptures. So that's it for our study this week. Next week, we're going to see that the man will get more work to do, and he's going to need help. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us in the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. All right, so it's time for a giant question, and this one was submitted anonymously through the website, giantanswers.com. Do you think that we should be concerned about the current situation in the world with medications being administered to everyone in light of the Bible's use of, and you can uh, correct this pronunciation, Bible's use of pharmakeia, translated as sorcery in Revelation 18, verse 23? Wow, very specific question. 
Mm. All right. Now, before I answer that question, I should just say that I really appreciate the delicate choice of wording involved in the asking of this question, and I think anybody who's been paying attention to what's going on in the world over the last two years ought to know exactly what this questioner is referring to. Uh, but I'm not going to mince around here. We're just going to tackle this head on. Basically, this amounts to asking, is the COVID-19 vaccine really some kind of witchcraft designed to deceive humans into accepting or becoming part of the evil world system of the Antichrist? Are humans being transformed through repeated medical treatments into some new species that is ineligible for salvation through Christ? Are we subjecting ourselves to mind control from artificial intelligences by taking these vaccines? Or are they simply killing us off? Now, I probably missed a few of the other conspiracy theories related to this, but you get the idea. And really, it's not about the specific details of which particular theory you prefer. The issue here is, what does the biblical text actually sustain? Because you can have all the theories you want, but don't be tying it to Scripture if that's not what the Scripture says. You can have your theories, just don't be claiming biblical authority for them. That's all I ask. So with that in mind, let's read the text. Here is Revelation 18.23 from the ESV. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. All right, so the key word that we're looking for is that last one, sorcery. But if we're going to do this properly, we can't just pick the word, do a quick word study on it, look for an alternative that suits the point of view that we're approaching the text with and say, well, this is it, this is what it means, and I was right all along because it's here as an option in the Strong's Concordance. It's the vibe, it's the Constitution, it's Mavo. I rest my case. More castle references. I already warned you once. It's mostly the vibe. Anyway, let's do a proper study of the passage and see if we can't figure out what this Greek word in the text actually means in context. So we're in Revelation 18, which is all about Mystery Babylon, the great harlot who rides the beast, and we are witnessing the final destruction of the great city of Babylon. Now, one of the reasons that I elected to devote this podcast series to a study of the primeval history is because a correct understanding of the primeval history is going to set you on the path for the correct interpretation of the remainder of Scripture, and that implies all the way to the end of Revelation. And I know that we haven't got there yet in our study because it's going to come at the climactic end of the podcast. Spoilers. But for the sake of producing interesting and relevant content in the meantime, I'm going to have to assume a few things that I haven't yet had the time to explain in great detail. And this is stuff you've mentioned in your book, though, right? Yeah, that's right. There's plenty more about this in Answers to Giant Questions. So if you want to get ahead of the curve, go to Amazon and grab the book or just follow the links at giantanswers.com. The beast system spoken of in Revelation is tied directly back to Babel because what happens in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel event is the formation of a system of world government controlled by the unseen pantheon of lesser gods in rebellion against Yahweh, the Most High God. These lesser gods exercise control over the nations of men by means of a proxy in the form of a king who is considered to be the embodiment of the god. We've already talked in this podcast about how that mechanism works. Initially, these deified kings that we see in the Bible referred to as Rephaim subjugate their lands and peoples by means of whole tribes of giant warriors. The giant tribes of the Bible are long since gone, but the legacy of the Rephaim remains to this day. 
The last mention of a biblical giant was 3,000 years ago, but we're still dealing with a world system that was implemented all the way back at the Tower of Babel and persists to this day. The Rephaim may be stripped of their glory, as we saw earlier when we looked at Ezekiel chapter 31, and the resurrection of Christ may have delegitimized their rule over the nations, but the old gods are far from dead yet. We still have a world divided by national borders and controlled not by political entities, but by spiritual forces. The principalities and powers of this world who wield possibly the most powerful force that the world has known in terms of the manipulation of the masses. And you might be thinking to yourself, ah, yes, here it comes. Religion, that evil tool of evil men used to drag the sheep blindly into submission. But that's where I think you'd be wrong, because the greatest force the world has ever known for corrupting people and turning them against the one true God is culture. When the old gods of Mesopotamian religion came back after the flood, they didn't bring religion. They brought culture. They brought civilization. They brought tools and technologies. They brought the arts and crafts and the media of civilization. That was the boast of Babylon. That was what made them so great. That was the reason why the author of the primeval history so vehemently belittled the origins of various forms of civilization, culture, and technology back in Genesis 4, which was, of course, picked up and expanded on much later by the writer of First Enoch. The Akalu tradition of Babylon was the primary motivator behind the writing of the Tower of Babel story. That narrative took the grand re-emergence of the Apkalu onto the world stage and turned it into a humiliating and effortless defeat without even giving them the acknowledgement of recording their names. They were sent away in shame, scattered across the face of the earth and placed under the judgment of God by being made responsible to guide the peoples of the earth back to the knowledge of the Most High, which was, of course, an impossible task that guaranteed their condemnation and future judgment. For those of you who might be unfamiliar with this terminology, the Apkalu are the equivalent to what the book of Daniel chapter 4 calls the Watchers, or in other biblical passages you find them referred to as the Sons of God, such as Genesis 6, Job chapters 1, 2 and 38, Psalm 82, etc. There are more of those out there. These are the guys who bring the wisdom of the gods to mankind. And for those of you familiar with this worldview, you will know that the book of Deuteronomy sums this up nicely in chapters 4 and 32 in particular, as well as many other passages. Uh, but we'll start with the Babel account. So from Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. 
And if we have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So these are obviously not just lights in the sky. We're talking about gods here. We're talking about entities with territorial dominion over people. If we go to Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, again, this is the ESV. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. There's that phrase again, sons of God. Or, as I mentioned earlier, the Apkalu, or uh, perhaps even in some other stories, uh, you might find the Anunnaki. And you now going to Psalm 82. I'll just read the whole psalm. It's only eight verses. A psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So we can summarise these passages by saying that the system of world government that was instituted at the Tower of Babel, long since corrupted by the fallen, is one that uses the knowledge of culture possessed by the old gods from before the flood as a means of controlling the masses around the world, a system that is still in full effect today. And this is why the Bible condemns those who invent ways to do evil. Don't be fooled by the old narrative that it's only religion that's responsible for the evils of the world by controlling the population. It's always been the culture of the people that has guided their movement away from the Most High God. And culture, as the Bible tells it, and as seen by first century Jews, was seen as a direct product of the evil of the Babylon world system. Introduce new technologies, entice people with their power, and then corrupt people by letting them use these new technologies to produce the expression of the evil desires of the heart. That's what put the fangs into the fall of man. The culture of depravity accelerated man's ability to act on the impulse to choose for himself what was less than God's best for us. Culture goes so much deeper than religion, and we've got to remember that in the ancient world you couldn't separate the two. While religion wasn't everything, it was certainly an intrinsic part of the culture. It's the culture as a whole that we need to be thinking about here because you can't distill the religion of ancient people out of their culture. I think it's time that we dispense with the narrative that singles out religion as the greatest achievement of Nimrod at the Tower of Babel. Because it's so much bigger than that. Everyone is pointing their fingers at Rome because it was the enemy of John's day, but the truth is the culture of Babylon is far more pervasive and far more applicable to the wider world today. It's the institution of Babylon itself as the depraved cultural centre of the world that really shines as the pinnacle of the primeval history. 
setting the scene for the biblical narrative to unfold as a response to and a reversal of it. So naturally, at the climax of the biblical story, when we get toward the end of the book of Revelation, what we're witnessing is the downfall of that world system. And look at the terminology that we find in chapter 18. I'm going to read the whole chapter from the ESV. The fall of Babylon. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble. Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendours are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, Alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off, and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas! For the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. 
and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. Now, if nothing else stands out from this passage, it should be the focus on material wealth and the culture of prosperity and sexual immorality that is mentioned in almost every verse. So when we find out that the word pharmakia, translated here as sorcery, is used in conjunction with the deception of the nations that traded with Babylon, it should be immediately apparent that the use of the term pharmakia relates to the metaphor of addiction to drugs. This dependency on the global trading system is what brings the nations to ruin once Babylon falls. They've built their economy on luxury and decadence, and now they're unable to sustain their basic needs. So that's the judgment that falls upon Babylon and the effect it has on the surrounding nations. There's nothing in this context about medicine or anything to do with transhumanism or some kind of campaign for population reduction. And people might say, yeah, but all that stuff is implied from other passages in Revelation. Well, my response to that is basically going to be whatever floats your boat, mate. I haven't got the time to go into that. And as much as I'd love to go into the details of dismantling your entire eschatological system, we wanted to look at one thing, which was the use of the term pharmakia. And what we've seen is that the context doesn't support this interpretation that suggests a vaccine being the means by which Babylon deceives the world. So... That's one less component to that system. It's kind of ironic that in this highly spiritual worldview, the chief sin of the great cosmic enemy here is basic materialism and sexual immorality. Nothing more than the distractions of our decadent lifestyles. We laugh about preachers talking about the God of entertainment or the God of beauty and wealth, but it's no accident that these petty concerns are ingrained in our culture. People mock the Book of Enoch for focusing on things like cosmetics, like, you know, ooh, how scary. The Watchers came to Earth just to teach people how to use makeup. What a grievous, terrible sin. But it's not until you see these things incorporated into a cultural system that is designed to completely remove people from concerns of much more importance and value that you realise that our entire world culture is a distraction and led merrily away from the knowledge of God. And I hear a lot of people saying, yeah, that sexual immorality thing, what they're really talking about is idolatry because that's a consistent metaphor used throughout the scriptures. There's so many examples of people talking about the idolatry of going after other gods and they talk about it in terms of sexual immorality. Yeah, well, that's great if you don't want to have to face the fact that there's nothing in this whole chapter that talks about idolatry at all. Not one word. This whole thing was about not only materialism, but sexual immorality in those terms if it were a metaphor for some kind of idolatry then we should be seeing hints of that in the text to make it clear but we don't because it isn't and i realize that that makes some people uncomfortable because if it actually does address sexual immorality then that means we can't get away with that so i realize that it might be easier to make it about idolatry and serving other gods and that kind of thing because it's very easy to turn around and say well hey i don't sacrifice to molech i don't bow down at the altar of zeus i don't serve any other gods so i'm all good no, but this passage is telling us that if you're devoting regular time to sexual misconduct or a materialistic lifestyle that prioritizes your personal comfort or satisfaction over the well-being of others, then you just might be a slave to the world system of Babylon. 
And it's not a mystery religion or some kind of satanic offshoot of the Catholic Church. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it's bad to have nice things and to enjoy the finer things in life. What I'm saying is if that becomes your priority and your chief concern, if you're all about getting rich and not about helping your fellow man, then the Lord Jesus Christ is going to turn around and say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. All right, that was Matthew 25. You want some eschatology? There it is. That's uh, pretty harsh there, Tim. Uh, I sure hope I'm never on the receiving end of that kind of discipline from the Lord. Well, knowing you, Chris, I know that would never happen to you because you're such a kind and generous friend. You inspired me in the past to live that kind of lifestyle. <laughs> I still think about it to this day. Uh, look, you're far too lovely. Thank you for the, uh, what's the opposite of public shaming, public uh, encouragement? Thank you. Well, that's all the time we got for on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast this week. Yeah, but before we go, uh, it's been a while since we've given a plug to all the different ways that you can get hold of us online and interact with us. It all starts with the website, giantanswers.com, and from there you can find us on all the major socials. Well, except TikTok. We don't do TikTok. But certainly you can catch us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. There's now a new private Facebook discussion group, and you'll find the link to that on the main Facebook page, Answers to Giant Questions. So get involved. Keep asking those questions. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Uh, bored and covered in baby oil. Yeah, something like that. That's a good night in. I'm glad you've practiced it many times in the mirror. Uh, I think it's time to look in the mirror. <laughs> well, you did when you shaved. No, <laughs> I, I should have had a better look. <laughs> no, you did a good job. To, uh, make myself bleed profusely. <laughs> yeah, uh, it happens to the best of us. Oh, it happened a lot. I, yeah. I actually went out wearing a mask, not because it was required, but because it covered all the band-aids. <laughs> <laughs> uh,